Welcome to the Paradigm Shift on 4ZZZ 102.1, where we challenge the assumptions of our current society to resist oppression and investigate alternative ways of living for a world based on justice, solidarity, and sustainability. Welcome to the Paradigm Shift on 4ZZZ 102.1 FM. It's your local community radio station and my name's Andy and I will be with you for the next hour. I'm back in the 4ZZZ studio, first time in a little while. Uh, Jagger and Turrible country here and it is great to be back um, it's been wonderful to be travelling around the country and still be able to make radio shows um, for you all and talk to all the uh, amazing, interesting people that I get to, but it's also very lovely being back here because community radio is all about the community and I'm looking forward to being back in Brisbane for a bit. Today on the show, it's all about dangerous ideas or something like that. Um, the Festival of Dangerous Ideas is happening in Sydney this weekend. Uh, I've never covered it before on this show, but actually uh, um, I thought uh, it's interesting to talk about dangerous ideas, both the ideas themselves and the theory of dangerous ideas, and so we'll have a bit of both on the show today. I spoke to Simon Longstaff, who's from the Sydney Ethics Centre, who put on the festival about why they do this festival and what they think of dangerous ideas. And then I got a couple of the speakers of the program, Sasanke Msiang, who is doing a talk about um, how the COVID uh, regulations were enforced differently according to different uh, races and socioeconomic status. And also Carl Rhodes about woke capitalism and what it means for democracy. So that's what's coming up. Uh, it's a packed show, so we'll get into it shortly. I will say to start off with that in general, I'm in favour of airing dangerous ideas. Um, we talk a bit about censorship and things like that in the show, and I'm one of those people who thinks that freedom of speech is fundamentally important and also that we all need to be challenged regularly by listening to things that we don't agree with, things um, that... May we find confrontational um, and that none of us know everything. None of us are right. We need to be challenged. And so um, we need to create spaces where it is safe to explore different ideas and we need to make sure that ideas are not linked to things that harm or oppress other people, um, but that talking about harm and oppression is you know, okay, that's how we learn what harms and oppresses people. So anyway, um, it's an interesting show. We certainly live in interesting times and um, censorship is a 
topic worth discussing. It'll be part of today's show, but not much of it. But anyway, let's get into the first interview with Simon Longstaff. Dr. Simon Longstaff, Executive Director at the Ethics Centre. Now, the Ethics Centre's big uh, yearly event is on this weekend, the Festival of Dangerous Ideas. Can you tell us a bit about what the festival is and the ideas behind it? Well, it was established more than a decade ago as an opportunity to push the boundaries when it comes to the kind of conversations we're able to have as a society. And although I don't think we really understood it at the time, it's become increasingly important that we do this because without doing so, the space in the middle which we all want to occupy gets smaller and smaller as various people try to close down one conversation or another. So there's a kind of an underlying serious purpose to it, but it's also meant to be something which is incredibly engaging, whether it's through the talks or the art, and tries to bring that spirit of intellectual adventure to bear so that whoever you are, you'll find something in the topic that makes you go, ouch. And once that happens, we hope you'll be interested enough to want to engage with the material. Not because you have to agree, but just so that you listen and, and form a view about what's being said. I'm interested in the idea of dangerous ideas, I guess, and how you put together something like this and curate it. And what constitutes a, a dangerous idea? Like, a, what makes something dangerous and to who is it dangerous? Yeah, well, that's uh, the interesting part, that latter part. But first of all, a dangerous idea has to be plausible. It's got to be something that could actually happen so that people don't just write it off as saying, oh, that sounds impossible. Uh, secondly, it has to be something that for a number of other people who hear the idea, they have that initial response of, surely you wouldn't do that or that's not who we are or who we want to become or something. Of course, for the person who is the proponent of the idea, it's not at all dangerous for them. It seems obvious that what they're putting forward ought to be taken into account, even if they've received a fair bit of criticism along the way. So, so, the, so the, yes, those are the kind of the major things that you look for for an endangered idea, that it's plausible and that it pushes a button, some area of sensitivity, in a way that gets you thinking about the kind of society you live in or would hope to live in in the future. What kind of editorial uh, power does the festival exert? Do you have to agree with ideas or, you know, is there a limit to what ideas you'll put on? Uh, I think, uh, yes, there's always a limit. So we don't have to personally agree with what the people are saying by any means. In fact, a lot of the time people will be putting forward ideas which you really don't agree with at all, but they're at least worth engaging with. Um, our limits would be certainly we wouldn't tolerate having someone who wants to come along and actually exhort others to engage in violent conduct with against others. Uh, wouldn't want to give a platform to somebody who says the intrinsic dignity of one group of human beings is greater than another uh, because all of the most horrible things done throughout history have been done by people who said oh that group over there are not fully human don't have the same dignity as the rest of us so there wouldn't be space for that and there wouldn't be space for someone who is just absolutely off their head in terms of being a, a lunatic you know and, and, and 
putting forward something that has no credibility whatsoever because that means that the whole festival would be treated as more of a circus rather than a festival for engaging with serious things that, that really matter in our lives either today or in the foreseeable future. But within that, that gives you a pretty broad remit. It means that there'll be things that are said that one group or another will find highly objectionable. Uh, there'll be moments of confrontation, whether it's in the ideas expressed or the artwork that we present as part of the festival, because it's more than just talks, there's also a curated art component. And you know that people will be upset, but then these are events which are not forced on anyone. People come along because they're they're wanting to test the limits of their understanding and be exposed to those who challenge them. Yeah, it's interesting that you said one group or another will be upset that I think uh, many of us have observed this trend in the last decade or so, uh, possibly influenced by social media, society becoming more divided and things that seem mm. obvious and reasonable to one group are objectionable to another. And then it's... so you end up with something that's not so much a controversial topic but maybe a partisan topic that some people think it's yeah, this is completely sensible and some people find it offensive and dangerous. I mean, is that different from something being dangerous and controversial in itself? Yeah, well, that tendency that you described, Andy, is exactly what we were putting the festival together in order to try and hold back. You can't totally stop it. The other thing that's happened in, in the process you described is that people have gone from saying, I disagree with you because your ideas are ill-formed or based on errors of fact or understanding. That, that's a perfectly normal basis for which one might disagree. But instead there's been this, this splintering of people into groups where they say, I disagree with you because you hold different ideas to me and therefore you are a bad person. So this kind of moral judgment that people who hold different views are bad is a new thing. Or maybe it's not new in human history, but it's new in terms of our, our recent history. And so you have to come back to your question, which is essentially are there some intrinsically dangerous ideas and are there, or are all ideas only relatively dangerous, depending on who's looking at them? And I don't think there are any intrinsically dangerous ideas in the sense that, um, I suppose those that deny humanity, I think that, that dignity, I'd, I'd pretty much go and say, well, anything that undermines the basic, the intrinsic dignity of all humans, that's intrinsically a dangerous idea and something to be avoided um, because it's based on a falsehood which can let loose some monstrous conduct. But most other things, I think, are more in the space where it's relatively dangerous in the sense that from time to time, place to place, group to group, there will people be people who object. And sometimes people will object from polar opposites like you get people from if you like the far left or progressive end objecting to a person and people from the far right or conservative end whichever way you want to define these things objecting and it'll be the same idea from the same person and they're objecting for completely different reasons uh, and that's fascinating when you see that happen i think looking at your bill for this year one of your keynote speakers is stephen pinker and i mm. think when i saw his name i kind of thought that i'm like well lots of people disagree with him or maybe dislike what he says 
but what he says is fairly mild. It's not, um, you know, let's uh, radically change things. He says, oh, things are pretty good, <laughs> you know. Um, and it's interesting to think of today's climate where that is seen as something dangerous. I mean, what was the thinking behind getting him as one of the keynotes? Well, he's he's got this interesting idea about there being something of benefit that emerged out of the European Enlightenment and that we shouldn't throw it all out, even though it undoubtedly produced some really terrible parts of human history. I mean, the European Enlightenment can be attached in some of its thinking to everything from those great industrial world wars which decimated so many people's lives through to imperial and colonial activity. I mean, there's no doubt that it has a dark side, but I think what Pink is wanting to say is, well, yes, let's live up to the truth of that, but let's also recognise that there are some extraordinarily liberating ideas that emerged out of that period, and we should prize those things that are good, that allow us to peer into the future with a mind informed by reason and not to say it excludes all other ways of knowing or thinking or being but that this has got some value now for people who want to reduce all of the world's ills to a very simple narrative something like Pinker's arguments could easily be taken as disturbing to the threat they'd say oh he's just a conservative voice in defense of a particular um, and questionable worldview and that's why we hope that in the festival, whatever your initial position, you take time to sit and listen. As I say, no, it's not about having to agree with anyone just because you turn up and listen to them, but at least understand the arguments. And it may be that it confirms your own position of opposition, or it might actually throw up something which you hadn't formally considered, and that advances the kind of civic conversation that we need to have. And... The one of other topics in this year's festival that's gained a bit of attention and as ever, I think the Festival of Dangerous Ideas maybe relies on a bit of controversy for some free advertising or something, but generated a bit of controversy. Uh, Joanna Burke talking about a history of bestiality. Mm. Um, I guess, how do you respond to uh, the criticism that conservative politicians have had against that? And also, I guess, the assessment of, you know, how much attention is going to generate is going to be positive or negative well the first thing is you, you hope and this is a, sometimes a forlorn hope that if there's going to be criticism it's going to be directed against the actual content of the talk and the ideas that the person's putting not something which people imagine to be the case or something which is presented to them as if it's the truth of the case because someone's just got the wrong end completely. And, and in this case, that's pretty much what happened. A critic started to say, how could this be talked about by presenting the talk and Joanna Burke's views in terms that were entirely false? But of course, once people get hold of an idea like that, even if it's entirely false, they don't necessarily check for themselves. They're, they're pressed into making a response. So the idea that Joanna Burke is speaking to in this particular talk is the kind of idea that a historian would look into. Uh, historians have told us stories of dark and shocking aspects of humanity. They've talked about the history of slavery. They've talked about cannibalism. They've talked about 
a whole range of things which no one would ever think that they meant to endorse simply by describing what had happened. And in this case, Burke is telling us the history of the way animals have been treated, not in order to advocate that they should be objects for sexual desire, because she's very clear that she believes that animals should be loved, which is not the same as saying that people should have sex with animals. The danger in this case was almost perfectly demonstrated by the fact that merely wanting to talk about this history prompted that kind of reaction that people felt it should be taboo, which is exactly what the title for the talk is, that it's the last taboo. Not that we should do it, but that we can't even talk about it. And that's why we put it there, because we want to have things discussed that are otherwise considered undiscussable, so that we can come to terms with the reality of that. And you know, a generation or so ago, there would have been topics to do with other aspects of human sexuality or family life that people say, oh, you, you surely can't talk about that, even about religion or politics. And yet it's always been part of the festival's remit to bring this together, not by kind of loopy individuals who are just sort of spraying around loose ideas, but by incredibly well-credentialed people like Joanna Burke, who is a world-class historian. Okay, well, to finish off the interview, you sort of alluded to it at the start, and I think there is a, a general feeling from a lot of people that maybe society is becoming more censorious. Um, censorship is nothing new, and I guess in some ways it's just who has the power to censor that changes in how we notice it. But um, I'm interested in your thoughts in this as somebody who's been organising a, a festival of this type. Um, is society becoming more censorious? And then what do we do with this, if that's the case? Yes, it is. Uh, I think it's becoming more fragile. And I also think it's becoming more fractured as people sort of fall into their little group. And sometimes, as you mentioned, with social media, they have their identity reinforced within an echo chamber where no one different is ever welcome. And all of those things, really, they weaken our attempt to maintain an open uh, civic space where as citizens we can wrestle with the very challenging issues that confront us now and will into the future. And what can we do about it? Well, I think, firstly, we have to presume goodwill on the part of those who might say things we find disagreeable or offensive and, and not merely assume that they're out to upset us, but instead that they might have a quite sincere belief which we perhaps should try and understand even without necessarily endorsing it. And we should continue, even though it's a nightmare every year, to put on things like the Festival of Dangerous Ideas so that we curate spaces where it's actually safe to go to listen to these ideas. It's not that people won't be challenged, but they'll be challenged in a place where it's okay, where everybody knows what they're doing and it's managed with care and expertise. Okay, well, if for those of us who are not in Sydney and able to attend the festival, is there a way that we can engage with some of the content that you at the Ethics Centre are bringing out? Yeah, I think there are digital tickets on sale uh, that people can plug into. I don't think it's for every session, but there's a pretty good cross-section. And if people go to the Festival of Dangerous Ideas website, they'll be able to see how and where to engage with that material, either 
on the weekend or later as we make it released to those who are festival supporters. Okay, thanks very much, Simon. Thanks, Andy. On Fortable Z 102.1 FM, the paradigm shift. We were speaking with Simon Longstaff from the Sydney Ethics Centre. They're running a festival this weekend. It's called the Festival of Dangerous Ideas. Um, if you're in Sydney, uh, you can get down and see some of the talks. Uh, if not, you can go to festivalofdangerousideas.com and there are some that will be filmed and you can buy tickets to watch them online. Um, but in general, I think uh, just trying to seek out some uh, controversial, challenging ideas is a good idea um, and worth doing. If you can't make it to the festival, um, well, you'll at least get to hear from a couple of the speakers over the next half hour because I thought, let's explore some of the topics that are being talked about. And so I am going to chat to Sisonke Msiung and then Carl Rhodes, who are both um, presenters at the festival. We'll start off with Sisonke, who uh, her talk is called Precious White Lives, and it is about how the uh, policing of COVID and the, I guess, the response to COVID uh, disproportionately affected people of different skin colours. Um, let's have a listen. My name is Sisonke Simang, and I'm a writer um, from South Africa originally. And you are part of the program of the Festival of Dangerous Ideas this weekend in Sydney. Your talk is called Precious White Lives. Can you tell us what it's all about? Um, sure. <laughs> As I desperately work on the last pieces of it. It's a talk that began in my mind, I think, when I arrived in Australia eight years ago. I'm a black South African and the experiences of living in Western Australia were pretty confronting sometimes. Um, and so the talk begins with kind of my own personal experiences of pretty overt racism. Um, but then it moves into what happened in 2020 when the combination of global protests about Black Lives Matters combined with this real sense that COVID was going to affect the communities both in Australia and around the world that were already really vulnerable to all kinds of other things. Um, and so it takes us through a kind of understanding of what it means for us not to talk about how much black lives matter, which they do, but to think about the ways in which white people's sense of their own preciousness often comes at the expense of black people's pain and suffering. So in terms of COVID, what examples would you say depict this? So there's, um, on the one hand, there's the stuff that happened at a global level because Australia is such a rich country. My family continues to live in South Africa. And one of the things that really struck me was how when the vaccines became available um, in South Africa, they weren't available. And in Australia, we bought enough vaccines for everyone to have um, three times. We had three times the amount of COVID vaccine that we needed. And so on the one level, there's this kind of global inequality that maps itself not only along race lines, but against that's about poverty, being part of a rich country. And it really hit me because obviously I was living this really great life in Western Australia. The borders were shut, there were no masks, and more importantly, I had access to every kind of medicine that I needed. Um, and at the same time, I knew that people in my family didn't. So that's the, the one side of how the examples around COVID. 
And then, of course, more specifically on the east coast of Australia, we witnessed the shutdown of the Melbourne Towers, which the Victoria Human Rights Commission has has indicated was a violation of the rights of the people who were in those towers, who were largely from uh, multi-ethnic communities. Um, I think that that was a case of sort of panic, of, of racial panic. Uh, shut it down, do it quickly, um, protect everybody else from these black and brown people. Um, and similarly, I think we saw this in Sydney uh, with the way that the what they called the LGAs of concern, local governments of concern, were really policed very heavily. And then we saw Bondi Beach, which had, you know, joggers and, you know, people living their best lives. Yeah, these things were noted at the time in the differences of how the uh, quite restrictive COVID laws were enforced. Um, And there's no doubt that there's a difference in wealth between, say, Sydney's southwest and eastern suburbs or Melbourne's housing commission towers and more comfortable uh, suburbs. Um, but you're saying that there's a, a racial element to this too, and there's no doubt that there's a, a correlation between those lower socioeconomic areas and more ethnic diversity. But do you think there's a, a racial motivation to these actions, even subconsciously? Yeah, I think it's both. I think there's clearly a socioeconomic disparity. And then on top of that, there is the very long history of racism in Australia. Um, And there is a sense in which people who are of darker skin tones are considered, even at a subconscious level, to have less value in the society, uh, to live lives that don't conform and fit into what the kind of norm is. And one of the things about racial thinking, you know, we all know that human beings are all equal and that there is actually no difference between us uh, other than very superficial levels. I think we all accept that today. But the problem is that we inherit this kind of racial thinking from, you know, centuries of scientific racism. And one of the things that that determines is the sense that black people um, have... uh, represented disease and death, the sense that um, we saw racism against particularly Asian communities, that Chinese people were responsible for the virus. So I think race is an overtone and an undertone that is splayed through. But certainly I'm not suggesting that any policymaker said we are going to get black people. You know, it's, it's not that crude. I think it's been illuminating too in terms of how society responds to a crisis, particularly in a time of global political instability and uh, environmental crisis. Um, do you think that COVID and what we've seen over the last couple of years has been illustrative of the good and bad ways that our society deals with crisis? I think you were picking up on something really important, and yes. So I think the idea, you know, I've gone back in my talk and I've looked at various pieces, various speeches and pieces of legislation, and um, Alfred Deakin, who was the Prime Minister of Australia, he gave this speech in 1903, and in it he talked about how um, Australia existed as, as a nation in order to provide the conditions of life and living for white men and women. So he was very explicit around that. And part of how I read that, if you kind of fast forward into this moment of crisis, because I think back then uh, there was a strong sense amongst the colonists that they were under threat, 
They saw indigenous people as a threat to them. They saw Chinese people as a threat to their economic security, right? And so I think under threat in a moment like COVID, generally this government did incredibly well in protecting people's lives, et cetera, et cetera. But there were these little pockets of outbreak of, of this moral panic, of this racial panic. We saw it with the flights from India where Australian citizens um, were, were not even allowed to come back home because there was this sense of panic. And I think it was a highly racialized panic. Um, so there, were, there are these moments where people feel under threat and when it comes to human threat, which I think is different from climate change, when it comes to human threat, then yes, you absolutely see people reverting back to these old tribalisms that don't belong in our society anymore. So I guess looking forward, if we are to face more crises or just in general, how do you think we can take these learnings and apply them to being a more equitable society? I think that the work um, that needs to be done is constant, right? So it's about um, looking at history and making the, mi the mistakes we've made appear visible. Um, it's about, and I keep coming back to this theme that race is an invention, that none of this stuff is real, and that the more we remind ourselves of it, because it's so easy to lapse back into racial thinking, right? Because racism is real, we kind of tend to want to believe that the the differences between us are also real at some physical or biological level. And so I think it's about a constant reminder so that as crises come up, we don't revert to this very false sense of tribe, but that we revert to the sense of us as uh, of, of our common humanity. Now, I'm interested in the fact that your talk is taking place in this festival of so-called dangerous ideas. Do you feel like your idea is dangerous? No, and I, I like the fact that you say so-called. <laughs> because I think that um, there was a moment in which playing around with, with danger was like a cool thing in the world of ideas. And... Uh, so while I love the festival and I think that what it does is allow people to exchange interesting ideas and ideas that provoke, um, I'm not sure anymore whether danger is a word that I personally would choose uh, to use when I'm talking about my ideas. What about more broadly? And I guess you kind of touched on it then, but do you think it's important to have these spaces where people are able to put out ideas that are controversial or heterodox? Yeah, I think it is. And I, uh, I guess part of what I am responding to when I worry about danger is that we live in such a polarized society and part of i think what the festival of dangerous ideas that like it's kind of oxymoronic isn't it to think about danger and festival together right <laughs> because a festival is about a celebration and having a good time and danger is about like fear and risk and so i think the the kind of paradox of those two together is about um creating places where provocative ideas can be discussed in a way that doesn't feel as if it is in fact dangerous. I'm very aware that Salman Rushdie has just been stabbed and is recovering for a set of ideas that are considered by some people in the world to be dangerous and therefore that he needed to be stopped, right? So I'm, I'm, I'm ambivalent about the term danger without moderating it with the notion of festival. Okay, thanks Susanke for chatting with us. Okay, thanks Andy. 
You're on four triple Z one hundred two point one FM. The paradigm shift is the show. We were speaking with Sisonke Msisung, um, who is speaking this weekend at the Festival of Dangerous Ideas on the topic which we were chatting about, which is about how COVID policing and I guess the efforts to stop COVID uh, affected people of different skin tones differently, and that revealed something about our society which we might want to uh, evaluate and that's why we've got to talk about things. It's not that dangerous idea, that one. I think most people by now can accept that racism is not very good and that uh, we should try to treat people equally regardless of skin colour and that there are subconscious ways that uh, race is present in our society, discrepancies, even if we try to do things uh, equally, that it's not that simple to just say we're going to do things equally, that um, that race is uh, subconsciously present in lots of different decisions and lots of different actions. And so hopefully by now that one's not too controversial, though in America, of course, there's constant culture wars going on about talking about racism and uh, learning about racism and things like that. And so maybe it is still a bit of a controversial one. Uh I'm going to fit in another talk here, going to squeeze it in. Uh, I spoke to Carl Rhodes, who's also on the program of the Festival of Dangerous Ideas. Let's get into that one. I'm uh, Carl Rhodes. I'm a professor of organisation studies and the dean at University of Technology, Sydney Business School. And you are also part of the Festival of Dangerous Ideas program this weekend. You're part of a panel discussion on woke capitalism. Can you tell us what that's all about? It's about the role that corporations are increasingly taking in getting involved in political activities and, uh, and, and kind of public goods. So companies, you know, who are involved in climate change or or uh, supporting same-sex marriage, supporting LGBTIQ rights, um, and so forth, and kind of having a look at what does it mean when corporations start getting involved um, uh, in things that were typically uh, part of the more public sphere, part of, of government and civil society. It's an interesting topic on many levels, but I guess one of the things is that in a neoliberal era, um, many of the things that were once uh, the responsibility of government in the public sphere have now been privatised and uh, corporate responsibility. Absolutely they are, and that has exactly has been uh, um, the legacy, if you like, of neoliberalism, if not the objective of, of neoliberalism. Now, of course, when that started, it was about privatising uh, government-owned corporations and kind of empowering uh empowering business in various ways hand in hand with a, a rapidly globalizing world um so the 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 shift was about public ownership uh, in many ways i think what we've seen more recently is that that's that's expanded even further and perhaps at times even more insidiously into things which aren't even directly the business of business um uh, and into into things about public opinion uh, political views are of various kinds. So it's kind of a, a feature of the the later stages of neoliberalism and a kind of an extension, a, a continuing encroachment of, uh, of uh, the private sector into uh, public life. 
Something that's gained a bit of attention in recent years is the rise of green washing, white washing, uh, sports washing, pink washing, uh, these ways of corporations using sponsorship or advertising to try to uh, claim that they have some great common good when really their motivation is purely making a profit. Yeah, it can be, you know, these various washings to, that you describe, you know, the idea of putting a thin veneer um, on the top of something to make it look different without really changing its substance. That that does, um, uh, that does and can happen uh, in many ways. But I think, what again, what we're seeing now has gone a bit further than that. I think corporations really are changing. Um, uh, you, you know, you might have noticed that yesterday uh, the company Patagonia has uh, decided to give away its company to an uh, all its stock to an environmental trust, and so I think there are real changes going on uh, to corporations that are well beyond uh, the you know the greenwashing or the other woke washing, whatever it might be. And there's real, but this is actually more dangerous in a sense. At least with woke washing, there's a kind of you know superficial hypocrisy. But I think we're seeing fundamental changes to the structure of power in society, which isn't just uh, about changes to the veneer. It's changes that are that are deep in the heart of what's going on. So why would you say this is dangerous? It's dangerous because corporations um, or billionaires who who often. Uh, uh, found them or or own them, are beholden to private interests. Ultimately, uh, a business is uh, is privately owned, either by shareholders or by individuals, partnerships, whatever whatever the case may be. The tradition of democracy, what allows democracy to work as a political system, is some notion of the division between public interest and private interest. So the two are kept. Uh, are kept separate. And if you don't have a dis- division between public and private I- interest, you have a system similar to the kind of feudalism that in, in, around the world, um, and in Europe in particular, democracies came to replace. So it's almost a, a return to a feudal system where our fate um, uh, as citizens is not uh, dictated by the democratic notion of popular sovereignty or, or the common will, but by the interests of um, people who are rich and powerful. Now, at times, that, that those interests could be benevolent um, and people trying to do things that, you know, might generally be seen as good, but not necessarily so. And so it comes down to who calls the shots in society. Is it the case that all citizens um, collectively call the shots in a democratic tradition, or do we just leave it to um, leave it to corporations and the ultra rich? I find that a problem because um, I ultimately believe that society is better um, organised in a democratic way. Now, there's never been some kind of formal handover of power for. Um, from governments and the public sphere to corporations for uh, social responsibility. It's just a, a trend that we've seen. So how would you suggest that we reel this back? 
Well, I mean, it is a trend, but it's a trend that's been quite deliberate. I mean, again, you talked about neoliberalism and kind of one of the central tenets that, that, uh, of that, as far as politics is concerned, is the idea of small government um, and, and uh, letting businesses um, kind of carry on. So in a sense, the withdrawal of government, the failure of government um, to take action on things, climate change in Australia, for example, being a, a key example, um, is what has has created uh, the conditions to allow other interests uh, to take over. So I think what we need is we need a, uh, a kind of new democratic imagination, a new political imagination where we reinvigorate uh, the value of democracy and don't look to private individuals and private corporations for all of the answers. Now, it's taken us at least 40 years to get into this mess. Um, uh, so, you know, there's no glib solution that's going to get us out of it. Um, uh, but it really means reviving politics. And to some extent, I, I kind of see that happening with, um, with young people these days. And, and really, you know, you know, I'm a university professor, so I deal with, with young people um, regularly um, as part of my work. And there really is a generational shift going on, a kind of repoliticization uh, of the youth, which has been uh, not the case for a number of previous generations. So I'm putting my faith in the next generation. It's interesting that you mention climate inaction here because I'm an environmental activist, right? And we did find over recent years that it was just no use at all knocking on the door of government to try to get meaningful climate action. And so, you know, as a way of actually using our democratic levers of power, there was a shift to focus on corporations and try to get them to take responsibility for climate. Um, and that's something that happened across the environmental movement. And I saw that as a way of actually enacting democratic power when it was blocked at the ballot box. What do you think about that? Yeah, I, I mean, you know, I can completely agree with you. Um, and I, I'm sure you remember Scott Morrison handing around a piece of coal in Parliament while his buddies were tittering in the background about who's afraid of this. I mean, completely pathetic uh, response uh, from the Australian government over an extended period, which does seem to be changing. I'm very pleased, pleased to see. But yeah, I mean, as an activist, uh, you kind of get done what you do. But I th uh, and as an activist, you're, you are also uh, exercising your democratic rights to uh, to take that to you know to engage in that activism, um, to engage in protest where, where necessary, and to get things done. So, in many ways, the change that we see corporations now in terms of climate is a result of the work that people uh, like you will have done in the same way um, many other changes. So it's important to see that as a kind of democratic outcome. But at the same time, uh, you know, it could change at any time. Uh, I don't think we need to give up on democracy for the sake of pragmatism. Um, and that's the real danger, I think, that, that we've been in. Um, uh, in terms of in terms of trying to make change, now I'm not just saying that business have no uh, role to play in these kind of things. Climate is key. I mean, the whole climate um, uh, catastrophe, the whole crisis of the climate, 
was created by industrial capitalism. You know, it started with the industrial revolution. So businesses and um, uh, and and kind of industrial pro production and the globalization of that through global capitalism is the, is uh, the very source and also needs to be um, part of the solution. I'm not saying that's not the case, but the leadership should ultimately come from the people. Well, your talk is part of the Festival of Dangerous Ideas, and I guess part of the concept of that is that we need these spaces where controversial ideas can be aired for the sake of democracy and freedom of expression, things like that. Do you think that the rise of corporate moral power is a threat to freedom of expression and ultimately our um, ability to create change? I don't think it's quite got to that yet. I think there's a sense that that, that uh, um, businesses are increasingly involved in kind of setting the tone um, and setting the issues that are set out in public discourse. So, for example, you'll see lots of businesses, as we've talked about, involved in, in political issues, um, but they tend to mainly be around social issues or environmental issues. You don't see much involvement in core um, aspects of um, economic dimensions of, of, of politics. You don't see um, uh, discussions of how do we curb excessive CEO and executive pay, or how do we increase the minimum wage, or how do we bring in a, a um, progressive tax system to create a more equal distribution of, of uh, income and wealth around the country, or universal basic income. So I think there's a, there's a tendency that that um, uh, this this move kind of helps determine what's on and off the agenda. And I think there's many things, particularly around economic inequality, vastly uh, widening, getting, uh, it seems, even worse with the inflation that we're, we're now seeing for the first time in a long while. So, so there's a kind of agenda-setting power there, which, um, uh, which is concerning. And, uh, yeah, the, but... Uh, so I think there's, it's limiting in that sense. Um, and, yeah, the dangerous ideas, it's, um, I guess... Who's afraid of them is the question. Who's afraid of them? And, and if anything's there, nothing's more dangerous than um, trying to speak truth to power. Okay, thanks very much, Carl. Excellent, thank you. You are on 4ZZZ. Um, that was uh, Carl Rhodes that I was speaking to. He is on the program of the Festival of Dangerous Ideas in the next few days talking about work capitalism as he was in that little interview. Lots to talk about there. I feel like I could have expanded a lot and I guess that's a good thing about um, ideas if they stimulate your thinking and stimulate different uh, questions that go in different ideas, that go in different directions. So that's what we want. Um, and I think there's some it's an interesting program festival of dangerous ideas uh some of them yeah you're a bit like oh, what's very dangerous about that but i think um it's certainly worthwhile having spaces like that and i think it is so worthwhile us trying to challenge ourselves stimulate ourselves with what media we're taking in reading watching listening to 
whatever, um, for us to intentionally read things that we disagree with, to try to learn other points of view, and yeah, to try to learn how to engage people that we disagree with and things like that. Fundamental for life as individuals, I think, but also for um, us as a society and how are we going to progress not for individuals, not how individuals in our society are going to progress. How are we going to progress as a culture and as a, a broad group of people, you know, to change the world, to make it better for everybody? And that's what we're all about. I'm out of time on the paradigm shift, but... Um, of course, on our show and on 4 Z in general, we try to do that as well, bring ideas that challenge. So keep tuning in. See you next week.